Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. I'm joined on the line by my next guest. Uh, Ewan McCohen uh, joins us from the NGV, the National Gallery of Victoria, uh, and joins us to talk about the NGV Triennial. Now, Ewan is the Senior Curator of Contemporary Art, Design and Architecture at the NGV and lead curator on the NGV Triennial, which has just been announced uh, and is running from the 3rd of December until the 7th of April. Ewan, would it be fair to say that in some ways the Triennial is, uh, I guess, the, the accompanying or opposing program for something like Melbourne Now, which focuses on Melbourne culture now, a snapshot of that. The Triennial is a global snapshot. Yeah, that would be pretty, pretty a pretty good description. It's a, I think we've got 100, over 100 artists for 35 countries, so it's very, very um, diverse in terms of the, the spread. Yeah. Given that diversity, talk to us about the challenge of curating something which provides a a valuable insight into global creative culture, rather than just some fashionable highlights. Well, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I suppose what we're doing is we spend about three years working on it, whether it's a triennial or even a little bit more. Um, and we're really we're not starting with a theme. What we're starting to do, and um, when we is looking at artists, designers, architects that we think are uh, doing interesting things, whether that means in terms of their their own preoccupations in their own practice or the types of subject matter they're looking at. And it ranges really right across from. Um, a contemporary craft practice, so some, we're talking about mastery of craft, we're looking at um, the emergence of artificial intelligence and, how, and what that's going to mean to us all, um, we're looking at um, social and cultural and political issues, so it's, it's really right across the spectrum and um, it, it is, um, there are also fashionable highlights, frankly, you know, it's, it's a really quite, a, um, quite an eclectic mix of, of, of projects. Um, and I suppose the good thing about working on the triennial is that there are no rules. We're not, as I said, we're not trying to make it all fit into one theme. What we're trying to do is foreground really interesting creative practice across the, the, the full gamut of what people are doing around the world. And you can't, obviously you can't do everything, but it's a very, um, uh, it's very um rich in terms of some major artist projects, but also lots of emerging artists, and, and also in this one, uh, lots of local artists commissions as well. Now, you said there's not a theme per se, but it does seem that thematic aspects have emerged over the, the several years of curating the event. So, mm -hmm. effectively, there are three thematic pillars uh, yeah. kind of anchoring the, the 2023 NGV Triennial. They are magic matter and memory. Talk to us about how those were identified and perhaps a couple of the, the key artists that kind of fit into each strand. Sure. So the, the theme sort of what, what, about eight months out from the show, um, 
or, or just under a year, we're starting to develop a, a major publication that goes with the show, and you're also looking at how you begin to start creating different um, journeys through it. So, so those thematic pillars matter, uh, magic matter, memory. They're not. Um, we don't. We don't label projects within the show so that people are going by by thematic. It's more of a kind of device that we use in the publication, in tours, um, and then in, 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 in programming, etc. Magic, we're talking about really belief systems, spirituality, um, whether that's contemporary or arcane systems, um, um, and uh, symbolism, but also... Um, Within that is this conversation, I suppose, about the the, the, the properties of nature. Um, so a, a good example would be Azuma Makoto, who's a Japanese... Um, he's the punk florist of Tokyo, and he's doing a major project which is looking at um, um, flowers, um, the life and death of flowers and our relationship to flowers, but also um, the sort of... Um, the properties of, of, of plants as... Um, as uh, life forces in their own right, but also in many cultures, what the symbolism of plants. And so we've, there's actually quite a few projects in the triennial which look at this, uh, the, the, the plants, trees, um, and natural systems um, from a more than human perspective. So thinking about it in, in terms of um, the magical properties of nature, matter, we're looking at I suppose, the physical matter that we make things from. So we've got um, major craft projects and looking at textiles and ceramics or, or metalwork, but also matter at a more sort of um, uh, physical level. We're talking about um, the, the, the matter that wraps around us all and that makes life possible. So and we've got a major um, architecture commission in the garden looking at air and air as... Um, the stuff that connects all, us all together, um, as was this is a project that was developed during COVID by Nick Brunson, but but also the, the matter that we take for granted. Another um, example in that um, thematic pillar would be Julian Sherrier's work, which is a, a huge video um, work of a of a, a fountain that's that's um, uh, flowing with water, but also roaring with fire. Um, and that's Julian's interested in um, the fact that human civilization um, exists and is sophisticated, um, but that we we actually are not in control of nature at all, and that within the Earth, for example, there are millions and millions of um, cubic kilometers of, of molten um, uh, metal stone flowing that that that. Um, we have no control over, but also we feel quite distant from. So this, this, that connects, I suppose, to the thematic of, of, of magic as well. And memory, we're looking at individual and collective memory, whether that's um, recent or more historical, um, several projects looking at sort of colonial um, histories from different parts of the world, um, uh, the United States, um, Africa um, and Australia, um, but a, a poignant project for me in that um, in that uh, thematic pillar would be um, a Kosovan artist, um, Patrit Halalai's project, which is um, a major installation of hanging felt paintings. But um, they're actually drawing on his experience as a child refugee during the Kosovan um, conflict. And so he he um, he started working with a psychologist as a as a child in the refugee camps 
um, in Albania um, drawing to process the trauma of war that he's witnessed. So that's, that's, I find that a very poignant project in terms of his experience, but also, um, you know, if we're thinking about current situations with war and their impacts on, on children. Mm. Um, so it's, 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 it is quite broad. As the other one, I suppose, in terms of memory is a project thinking forward. Um, we've got um, uh, a Polish-American artist um, 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 uh, who is working on Agnieszka Pilat, who's working with um, three Boston Dynamics robots, teaching them how to paint autonomously in their own studio, which we're building in the gallery. And she's imagining these um, in the future as being the, um, the sort of the primitive artworks of, of, of AI robots. So with sort of um, as AI becomes more prevalent and more um, sophisticated, she's imagining a future where we will have a sentient race of AI um, robots living amongst us. Now, people may have seen those. They're kind of robot dogs, I guess, would be the, the way to describe them. And I, I'm intrigued that then the, the, the triennial is not only reflecting the human experience of art, but art from perhaps a more than human experience as well. Yeah, totally. I think it's, it, it's interesting. There's a couple of projects looking at AI. For, for, we've got um, Kevin Abosh, who's an Irish photographer who who generates um, synthetic imagery, which is basically deep fake artwork. He's interested in how photography um, merged with AI can be manipulated um, to change what to change opinion, to, to, to shape um, you know discourse, and whether that's political or commercial or cultural, it's quite an interesting space. And yes, the robot dogs. These are Boston dynam Dynamics. They're called Spot. Agnieszka is basically um, developing code with a team of engineers um, to enable the robots to paint autonomously. So they will li live in the gallery for four months. They've, they've got, they'll have a little studio apartment. Uh, they'll have a, a, a painting space, and they'll live in there, and they will work on and um, collaborate together on, on large and um, format paintings, which we will um, they'll do about um, one painting every three days, but they also will um, live, work and play in, in that space. And that's sort of, she's interested in um, the idea that we should have empathy for robots where we're, we're creating, um, from her perspective, a new species that, that lives amongst us. And, but do we have empathy for them? How do we, can we, how, how do we feel about them? And how will that change going forward? Because it's certainly something that's going to become more and more prevalent. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Ewan McCohen, who is the Senior Curator of Contemporary Art, Design and Architecture at the National Gallery of Victoria. He's also the lead curator on the NGV Triennial, which is the focus of our conversation today. Now, the Triennial is running from the 3rd of December until the 7th of April. It is free. But intriguingly, you won't even have to enter the NGV uh, in St Kilda Road to experience some of the works. There is going to be a large text-based work by Yoko Ono, I understand, projected on the outside of the gallery, and then um, an eight-metre-long bronze eel trap by a Wurundjeri artist, Auntie Kim Wandon, installed in the moat of the NGV to ensure that there, the, the triennial is accessible to all uh, and to remind even passers-by that art is part of everyday life. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, the Yoko Ono work is actually, it's a, it's a, a printed banner 
and she's worked on these projects around the world, obviously very senior um, uh, artist and very famous person. These are simple messages to, um, to everybody um, about, um, you know, caring for each other, caring for the natural world, caring for the environment. So, um, and Yoko's also doing a project inside the gallery, um, which is a, um, uh, a participatory work that she's done internationally looking at um, uh, for people to leave messages and for their mothers in in the space and it's sort of a um, a, a work that, that aggregates over time and, and will fill a whole whole gallery out the front we do have yes Andy Kim Wanden so that is a um, um, Andy Kim wove um, an eel trap which was commissioned and we've actually 3d scanned that and worked with a foundry in Melbourne to then upscale that into an eight meter long bronze uh, so it's a major new public artwork commissioned together with the city of Melbourne. Um, we also will have David Shrigley's um, giant thumb, uh, which is a seven-metre-tall um, thumbs-up. It's a sort of sarcastic, um, quite um, witty work that David did as part of a commission for the fourth print in, in London after the Brexit referendum in the UK. So it's called Really Good, um, and that will sit out the front of the water wall um, on St Kilda Road. And also that work I mentioned at Julian Charrier, the Burning Fountain, that will actually sit inside the water wall so at night people will be able to see this um, this, um, this uh, fire roaring um, inside the, the, the entrance of the gallery. Um, so don't bring the fire brigade, it's, it's just a video. <laughs> uh, and there's also a work that I, uh, I think we have to mention as we begin to wrap up the conversation, Ewan. Uh, uh, people even people who are unfamiliar with the world of contemporary art, may have heard about a banana that was duct-taped duct to a wall. Uh, an iteration of that work will be presented as part of the NGV Triennial. And uh, um, a request from me in advance, and I'm sure from the NGV staff, please don't eat the banana. Yeah, this is Mauricio Catalan, um, Italian conceptual artist. Um, the work is called The Comedian. And he um, he first showed it in uh, at the, at the um, Art Basel Fair in Miami in 2019, and it, it's it, it's a uh, it's it's a witty work. He he doesn't present it with an interpretation, but I suppose what we're looking at is this this work is sort of a critique of of the art world, um, a critique of the art market in terms of what we ascribe value to, um, um, what is an artwork, who decides. Um, how can it be sold? Um, and it is, yeah, it's a banana duct tape to the wall and we will um, change over the banana as it becomes overripe. But um, that work is online from the artist for the show and it's, um, it's, it's, um, it's actually generated a lot of coverage. So it's, um, uh, if people just come to see the banana, that's fine. They'll also see lots of other things at the same time uh, because, of course, the banana is part of the journey. For me, one of the best things about the triennial is that it is free and it, it takes over the whole building on St Kilda Road. So really it's, it's a, a journey through multiple um, conversations, all of the spaces that um, lead from one thing into another. And, and um, it's, a really, um, uh, it's a really fascinating um, uh, audience experience. And from having done now, this is the third one, we, 
we understand that people come multiple times because it's a big show, there's lots of um, participatory work, um, there's lots of things to dwell with, like longer form works and, and film-based works and things like that. Um, got a project that's looking at the mega city with 10 street photographers commissioned from 10 of the most popular cities in the world. It's a big um, interactive multimedia environment that we're creating up on the third floor. Um, so there's, yeah, really um, lots of people to see, and um, it will be... It's At some points, it's a pretty tough show. It's very topical, but also it's very um, optimistic and uplifting at, at other times as well, just like um, life is. I look forward to diving in and experiencing and visiting perhaps a couple of times. The NGV Triennial 2023 will feature over uh, 120 artists, designers and collectives from more than 30 countries and regions uh, and runs from the 3rd of December until the 7th of April at NGV International in St Kilda Road. For more details, go to ngv.melbourne and while you're there, find out what else is on at the NGV. I've been chatting with uh, Ewan McCohen, who is the Senior Curator of Contemporary Art, Design and Architecture at the NGV and Lead Curator on the Triennial. Ewan, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Um, hope to see you here. Triple R. Composed by Vangelis, that's the end titles of the classic science fiction film Blade Runner. Uh, there is a special screening of Blade Runner, well, four special screenings, happening uh, this weekend at Hamer Hall, accompanied by a live uh, performance of the score. Uh, so there are two performances on Saturday, two on Sunday. And I thought it would be really fun to talk about the film, about the music, about its cultural impact. And I thought, who would be good to talk to the film about with? And two people immediately leapt to mind. I'm joined in the studio by Flick Ford from Primal Screen and Rob Jan from Zero G. It's an absolute pleasure to have you both here. Oh, it's an honour, Richard. G'day, Richard. It's been a while since I've shared the airways with you, Rob, I think. Oh, well, you know, Zero G infests the space between the dead air, the dead air <laughs> on Triple R, so possibly we've been closer than you thought. Oh, well, <laughs> you've moved around a bit. I think I've panelled for you once or twice as well. And Flick, lovely to have you in as well. The Blade Runner end titles yeah. ring a particular <laughs> bell for you. Yes, of course. That's how I close my show every week. So, uh, lovely memories. Yeah. <laughs> so, what are your first memories of Blade Runner? Individually, mm. you go first, Rob. Well, I remember seeing it in the cinema back in 1982, so it would have been like Hoyt's Mid City or, or Village in or Greater Union, something like that. And it was in that that magnificent 10 year slot between 1975 and 1985. So you had like Alien 2001. Uh, sorry, I saw the 2001 in that era. Uh, Star Wars, Close Encounters, Superman, Aliens later in the 80s, and Star Trek, the motion picture, and the Wrath of Khan. So it was like this enormous quantity of still franchised movies that still exist today. In fact, it's very much like the 80s now when you think about it movie-wise. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of nostalgia. I think I first saw Blade Runner on VHS, uh 
because I, um, yeah, I was born after it came out. But I then did watch it on DVD because it was one of the first films to come out on DVD. No surprises of um, the lasting legacy of it. And then I did teach it for several years at Melbourne Uni. <laughs> it's one of our key films to look into for special effects and, and storytelling. Yeah. I would have seen it in 1983, uh, I think, not actually in the cinema but projected onto a, uh, like, an actual film version, but at a convention in the, the the Saturday night entertainment area. If you didn't go to the convention banquet and, oh. and masquerade, <laughs> you'd sit and watch films instead. Uh, and I wandered in, and I I I think I only saw the last twenty minutes, and so I was like what is this film, yeah. went back to Moi, where I was living at the time, and rented it on VHS and must have watched it a dozen times since. But, of course, there are multiple versions mm. of the film now as well. I think seven. Seven different yeah. cuts all up if we're, if, if we're including the, what, the, the work print that was first screened to test audiences which resulted in the studio going, oh, we hate it, give it a new <laughs> ending, whack on a, a voiceover. Uh, and then, but now I, I guess it boils down to, what, three different versions, the original theatrical yeah. cut, the so-called director's cut and the 2007 final cut, which is the one that's going to be screening at... Arts Centre Melbourne on the weekend. And I think that's Scott's favourite version. That's the one he personally Mm. oversaw, unlike the director's cut, which he didn't. (laughs) Confusing. Yeah. But I guess for all of us, why is Blade Runner such a quintessentially significant science fiction film? Because it it still kind of has weight and texture and and emotional impact Mm. now so many years after its release. Well, there's so much that is relatable that is, I think, with with sci-fi because it is future forecasting, there's so much in it that you can sort of unpack, and I think there's a beautiful philosophy to some of the the monologues that we that are in Blade Runner. One of which uh, Rutger Hauer actually re- wrote himself, or, or kind of based off uh, the original script, but he did improvise a lot. He got free reign on this film, and to wonderful effect. Um, but I think there's just so much in it and the world be- building of Blade Runner is amazing. And one of the things, and, and we were chatting, uh, Rob and I were just chatting off air before about the, the rain and the smoke that really uh, is iconic in, in Blade Runner. Um, but that was used because they didn't have that much space. So so really Scott wanted to hide the fact that they're actually quite limited. So smoke and rain, they're such old school uh, approaches to to masking things, and the special effects are amazing. Rob, you rewatched this what last night? Yeah, they do hold up, don't they? Yeah, well, it's not just that he can he can hide all of those uh, <laughs> mechanical and practical effects from that time. He he was doing that all the time in all of his movies. It was just a big thing with him. But I, I think that it's two thousand and twenty three. We're talking about a movie that was set in a now past 2019. It was released in 1982 and it's inspired by a story by Philip K. Dick that came out in 1968. So, you know, it's so retro. Yeah. Interestingly, Scott never read the Philip K. Dick novel. Still hasn't, from what I... Like, still hadn't, as far as I'm aware. (laughs) Now, one of the things that strikes me and and fascinates me about The Rain, I mean, it's set in a future LA Mm. uh, and LA is a pretty dry city. Rain is actually relatively rare. So in some ways it, it's forecasting climate change mm. uh, at a time when climate change wasn't being talked about in the popular imagination. It was more smog back then, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. So, yeah, so that the kind of endless drizzle and rain, which fits beautifully with uh, 
the the film noir elements that yeah. it's that it's kind of riffing off and referencing and that blending for me of film noir and science fiction yeah. is one of the things that makes it an exquisite film uh which is why when i first saw it with the the Harrison Ford voiceover which is has since been removed yes. from the film um at the time i was thinking okay the voiceovers it works. It it fits in with that Philip Marlowe style kind of uh, down these mean streets, uh, a man must go uh, kind of vibe. But intriguingly, now I'm guessing you've both read quite widely about the film. Apparently Harrison Ford hated having to do that voiceover <laughs> and deliberately yes. made it as flat and lifeless as possible in the hope that they wouldn't use it. Yes, he's been very outspoken about how much he hated that and how much he was against it. But like you say, Richard, it does fit in with the kind of detective stylings of, of the story. Um, but interestingly enough, Harrison Ford was not the first pick. Um, if you see lots of the early um, storyboarding of the film, it actually um, has Dustin Hoffman uh, sketched out. So <laughs> you just want to reimagine Blade Runner with Hoffman. Um, no, really I don't. interesting. <laughs> so Harrison Ford was not the top pick, but I can't imagine the film without him, really. Oh, no, there was one other person I think originally chosen. Robert uh, Mitchum no, uh, was the yes, first one. Was, but yeah. El- Elmer Fudd. Oh, really? I didn't know that. <laughs> because if you look at Elmer Fudd's transition and dramatic roles in life, they're all like being beaten up like Harrison Ford in Blade Runner. <laughs> Now, on its original release, Blade Runner was not considered a successful film and it reminds me of things like of other films like Citizen Kane, for mm. example, mm. which are now considered quintessential kind of films of uh, 20th century cinema. Um, Rob, I know that you saw Blade Runner multiple times mm. on its original cinematic release. It wasn't a failure for you. No, but, it, but it was considered a, a flop by Hollywood. Why do you think we've come to reappraise it uh, and revalue it now? Is it because of the different cuts that have enriched and added and enhanced the film? <laughs> yeah, each, each generation has had a crack at a different cut. <laughs> <laughs> Same with the soundtrack, actually. Uh, Van Gallus' soundtrack, that has also gone through various iterations. It didn't come out on, uh, on, on vinyl until ten years after there was bootleg cuts floating around and everything. But ten years later, we got mm. the soundtrack. And that's not a definitive version either. There are other versions of that, just like the film. And, and the funny thing for me is that that kind of mirrors the whole, the whole main theme of, of Blade Runner itself, which is about, about things being more human than human. So you've got all these different iterations. I like Nexus 6, so, so presumably there were Nexus 5 androids and so on. And it's the same thing with the film. So I, I guess it's part of that enables it to be accessible to each different generation. Normally that means you have you know, different Star Wars films, mm. everyone has their favourite, or different Doctor Whos. But in this case, it's the same damn film that keeps <laughs> rolling over and over. Well, one of the things I think that doesn't doesn't sort of stand up is, of course, the... Um, the love scene, would we say? The sex scene uh, between between um, Harrison Ford and Sean Young, uh, who play Rachel and, of course, um, Deckard. Um, yeah, so do you know the story behind the some of the, what happened behind the scenes? I know that there was considerable tension between the two the, of them. And so yeah. in that scene when he throws her up against a wall, he's violently shoving her effectively. Well, yeah, so that was an instruction from Ridley Scott who told Harrison Ford but didn't 
say that to Sean Young. So she's genuinely shocked that that is happening in the scene. Um, there was multiple takes and then suddenly in one of the takes Harrison Ford shoves her and she didn't have that see that coming and she burst into tears. And apparently there's a documentary done on this film that um, apparently afterwards Harrison Ford, to lighten the mood, decided to pull down his pants and moon <sighs> everyone, like the, the crew and her. Um, she talks about it quite... Uh, lightly and doesn't, but it, yeah, there's, it's, it doesn't stand stands the test of time very well. <laughs> it, it does certainly mm. show us the way that Hollywood culture and mainstream culture have have evolved over time. Now there would be uh, for a, a scene like that, there would be an intimacy coordinator Absolutely. employed, for example. Yeah, and and as as vile as that seems and is, it actually kind of makes some weird sense in terms of she's an android and. Whether or not he is one, mm. well, you know, the question is more interesting than the answer. And he's actually giving her orders when you think about it. If you watch the, the actual scene and you think, oh, where am I going with this? What am mm. I seeing here? And I, this, all of this went totally over my head back in 1982. But now I watch that and think, what are they saying here? Mm, the play between human and, and android is so fascinating in this film and I particularly uh, love Rutger Hauer's performance and I think, again, like you were saying, Rob, that plays off so well. Like apparently he was just given all the things that are, you would normally associate with being human, so the poetry of, of, of his performance and the sexuality and apparently he showed up uh, at his first meeting with Scott dressed in pink satin with peroxide blonde hair <laughs> to throw him off and <laughs> Scott hated it but he still managed to cast him in the end. Yeah. Well, he's actually a soldier, and we, this gets glossed over in the fact these are all veterans from the from the wars out in you know in the Tannhauser Gate or whatever. The one that Kurt Russell fought in, in uh, Soldier. <laughs> but um, in this case, it's like you're thinking all of that stapled onto it, and it feels to me like uh, Roy, his character, Howard's character, is is actually trying the, some of these emotions on for mm. the first time, mm. and it's like a David Bowie song. They're all sort of written on bits of paper and stuck together in random yes. order. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about the soundtrack because that's mm. going to be performed live yes. uh, at Hamer Hall on the weekend. In, oh. As I said, two performances on Saturday, one at 7 and one at 10.30pm. And then uh, the other performances taking place on Sunday at 1pm and 6pm. And I understand there are still some tickets available if you go to artcentremelbourne.com.au. Vangelis was not the original person being considered for the soundtrack of the film. Mm. Um, uh, I think, uh, let's see, the according to Future Noir, The Making of Blade Runner by Paul M. Uh, Salmon, one of the definitive books about the film, um, kind of Jerry Goldsmith was under consideration at one point. And then when Vangelis was shown a cut of the film, he was, quote, thrilled and terrified <laughs> by what he saw, thrilled because of the film's beauty, terrified because of what Blade Runner forecast about a chillingly plausible mm. future. Mm. Uh, but instead, kind of, he, we do end up with kind of the, uh, the Vangelis soundtrack, as you say, Rob, not released until a decade after the film itself. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm sure that there must have been tension um, in terms of scoring the film because I suspect it was being cut and recut mm. and recut, which makes scoring something rather challenging. Absolutely. He did it as a standalone soundtrack. That was his approach to it, basically. Um, Vangelis, Odysseus, Papathan Asio, as he's... <laughs> properly known, what a mouthful that is. He, um, he, I should say that he taught us 
so much about the electronic. Oh, the that ele- is a terrible pun. <laughs> totally too much. He he worked on this in the studio in the studios, and he's it's very much like one of his own studio albums, which just makes it even weirder. But we were talking about Roy before uh, Howard's character, and I love the way the soundtrack. Everyone knows the love theme and all of the, the main pieces, but bits and pieces of that which tie into the sound effects so well when Roy is chasing Deckard and he's howling like a wolf mm. and it's reflected in the, the score and the sound effects as well mm. and I love the fact that he does that and these are the subtle bits in the score that make those worth listening to. This is not an album that you should just pick out the main pieces yeah. have a look, listen to the other stuff too mm. And I, th- I love this trend in cinema, uh, event cinema you know, this idea mm. of actually a live performance of the score is so powerful and we've seen that with Hear My Eyes. They've done that. I know that um, Arts Melbourne has done lots of these performances before. Yeah, but the MSO have done a lot as well. Yeah. Um, and for me, one of the, the, the joys of going to these kind of experiences, when it's the MSO, for example, a lot of people may go, oh, I don't really like classical music, but then they watch a film with the orchestra playing live and they go, oh, I do like classical music. I just didn't know because so much of modern orchestral music is classical or drawing upon classical themes and has such potency and power to it. I'll be really intrigued to see what Blade Runner Live is like with a live electronic uh, collection of synth players playing along as well. It won't necessarily have the same kind of gut impact as a a full-bodied orchestra, but I'm sure it will bring uh, light and shade and depth to the film in ways that I've perhaps not experienced before. Mm. I do hope that they have. I I don't actually remember if this is part of the soundtrack or part of the audio sound effects track, that gut punch at the start. You get that doom. I hope that's there. I will let you know after I see it. <laughs> now, Flick, um, given that you have taught Blade Runner yeah. at uni, what what kind of responses do you get from particularly some of the, the younger students who are maybe seeing it for the first time? Yeah, or they're, or they're more familiar with the sequel. Of course, we had uh, Blade Runner 2049, if I got that right. Mm. Um so I feel as though it's referenced so much in cinema. So often students coming to the film for the first time do already have it as a reference point and they realise all these references, you know, there's all these, um, you know, scenes from, from the film that get referenced and so they have this point um, where they come back to and they're like, oh, I didn't realise that was from Blade Runner. So usually, um, I mean... It's interesting with a film that's had such a lasting legacy. It is a, makes for a really worthy text to go into and unpack all the things that make it so successful. Um, like you said, it wasn't financially successful, but there's all these creative decisions um, that that create a sense of this future that has this resonance that can, you can still identify with, regardless of the decade that you're kind of engaging with it. And there's a real skill to that. Or the or the decade that you're engaging with it. But mm. one of the things that I noticed about it... I just <laughs> realised that fun, how bad it was. <laughs> you've been... You've been You've been rick, rickrolled. Yeah. But if you, moving on from that, I mean, if you have a movie like this that's had so much resonance in the in the cyberpunk movement, both on screen and and Kay Dick's novel actually did the same thing for literature too. Mm. You know, so you've got this twin thing, and plus it's got a massive influence, the soundtrack upon lots of other soundtracks and musicians. I mean, it's probably the most sampled film in terms of its dialogue and music that's ever been. Uh, you know, you, you go through all of that and then you realise that right now we are actually living in another existential crisis about mm. artificial intelligence. Yes. So, I, of I was, course. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking a lot about that and particularly with how... Um, 
you know, um, Roy and Descartes are set up as these kind of polar opposites. And and the conversations we're having around AI, you know, we thought that AI would do all the boring tasks. You know, there's that great tweet I think it gets shared so often about we thought that AI would do all the admin instead and we'd get time more time to do poetry and music, but instead it's the other, the way, other way, around. way around. Yeah, and... I mean, I think chat GPT doesn't quite know how to do poetry, but or at least any yeah. But anyhow, that aside, there's a lot of yeah. Th- this is still so relevant, and oh. and that question of um, what it means to be human, um, and and those bigger questions we ask ourselves about what is real. I, I don't know. There's so there's a lot to unpack about it, and you know the film is. We should say it's it's an adaptation, but it is so different from the original text. Um, so it kind of just exists in its own way. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like The Shining. Mm. It's also fascinating for me how, as you say, Rob, like this is an influential film on other writers, other filmmakers and so forth. Um, uh, William Gibson, the author of Neuromancer, uh, which was published in 1984, reputedly saw Blade Runner at the cinema on its first release and came out despairing, going, but that's the world (laughs) I've been imagining and writing about. Oh, God, what's the point of even continuing? So, yeah, yeah, the the fact that, and again, I guess it's that one of the reasons perhaps Blade Runner has such cultural weight is because it does encapsulate a particular zeitgeist Mm. of that particular period. Um, which is then also yeah, uh, picked up and reflected in Neuromancer and, and other kind of work, science fiction works of the time. It's not the only one that's got had that same approach to it. I mean, you think about Alien and it's Android. You know, he's more human than human. In fact, he can pass as human easily, which is um, what they're also doing in, in Blade Runner. And then there's that the, the score that it's not just the only electronic score for a movie that's ever been made, you know, Forbidden Planet many years before that. Mm. And, you know, they had the whole thing of Doctor Who with their extensive uh, electrofuturism there, you know. And so, it, but it still is the one that everyone goes back to mm. in spite of the fact that it, it is actually just one more milestone along the road. But it is a genuine classic. I don't think anybody yeah. would argue with that now. No, and I it's think it's a vintage film now. <laughs> yeah. And there's also so much precision in Scott's filmmaking. And that's something mm. I remember hearing an anecdote about how he got shown a hundred. He got shown um, a selection of pens for a particular scene, and he was like, "No, I need to see all all the pens." So he wanted like a hundred more pens. <laughs> to look on, the, at on the very first day of filming, he walked onto the set, which uh, is the the office of the in the Terrell. Yeah. Corporation, and he looked around and went, "Turn the pillars the other way round." <laughs> well, he got he got fired days after it's uh, they finished shooting, you know. So <laughs> an enormous tension between Ridley Scott and the film crew, who even yes. got T-shirts made, yeah. kind of uh, uh, to to show their their frustration, shall we say, with his approach to filmmaking. Hey, yeah. did you know that it has it has Edward James Olmos in it from Battlestar Galactica, New Battlestar Galactica? He's the the other cop. Oh. And so, of course, he's in there many years before he has trouble with toasters and robots, <laughs> once again having trouble with artificial intelligences. Uh, you just can't trust them. No. <laughs> We're talking about Blade Runner and, uh, in particular, if you are a fan of the film or if you want to take somebody along who's never seen it before to show it to them on a, on a big screen at Hamer Hall, you can do so this Saturday at 7pm and 10.30pm, Sunday at at 1pm and 6pm, go to artscentremelbourne.com.au to book tickets for Blade Runner Live. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I've been chatting with Flick Ford. Flick, people can catch you on Monday nights yeah. here on the R's. Yeah, we'll be chatting about MQFF next week. 
excellent. I'll have to tune in for that. <laughs> um, so that is Monday's primal screen from 7pm till 8pm. And then earlier in the day, you can catch Rob Jan with Zero G from 1pm uh, till 2pm. Mm. Anything special coming up this Monday? Uh, well, I haven't thought about it yet, but I'm sure something will come to me as a futurist. Always going, oh, what's going coming up next? Well, tune in and find out. Thank you both for joining me in the studio for a, a broad-ranging conversation about Blade Runner and why we still love it. Thanks, Richard. Pleasure, Richard. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Now we're going to talk about independent theatre uh, and as always, because it's a show that is being presented at La Mama, uh, at the La Mama Courthouse, quick disclaimer from me, I'm the chair of the La Mama Committee of Management. It's a volunteer role. I don't benefit financially from promoting La Mama events. With that out of the way, we're going to talk about uh, Girls Act Goods new production, Slightly Cracked. I'm joined in the studio by Jennifer Monk and uh, Lisa Dellinger. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Thank you. <laughs> so um, this is a show kind of dealing with some quite kind of significant and heavy subjects. Mm-hmm. Sure yes, is. it absolutely <laughs> is. Uh, yeah, where do we start? Uh, we, we've been working on this show for how many years yeah, now? Yeah, three years. Three years now. Yeah. So um, we, we did a lot of research into uh, mental health facilities, you know, used to be called asylums and – we were quite shocked at the stories we found and the treatment and, and Girls Act Good being um, women, we've sort of focused on that female experience. And so we had a whole research period and then it went into a creative development where it's um, it's become three different worlds now. Do you want to talk about yeah. that, Jen? Yeah, so we did a lot of research, as Lisa said, into facilities. We also looked at um, patients and staff. We also um, did a call out to community to see if anyone would like to share their stories, which mm. some people did, mm. um, who were having more recent times in facilities and, and your um, personal yeah so as well. um, a, fam- a great aunt of mine was put into Q Asylum a long time ago uh, not knowing you know in that time they didn't know what it was but we now know it's menopause and then she passed away a couple of weeks later so that was sort of something that had been in the back of my mind that probably gave birth to wanting Mm. to do this um which is one of the reasons I was interested in talking to you Mm. both about Mm. this because uh my great great grandmother um who was a uh survived the the great hunger the famine in Ireland Mm. came to Australia married the son of a convict uh and was suffering from what we would now call postnatal depression but was bundled off to an asylum Mm -hmm. and buried in a pauper's graveyard exactly Uh, so there's been this long history of women being treated abominably by mm-hmm. the medical profession and the psychological profession. Mm, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, and they uh, used to basically just get locked up in there and you needed a certain amount of signatures to get out and that's why a lot of women would never be able to leave when they should have been getting proper treatment and yeah. things and proper care and being looked after, but they would just get stuck in there. And it wasn't just, like, I mean, it wasn't just women. No, of course We are not. concentrating on that, <laughs> but it was also parents that had children that, you know, had um, disabilities or um, health reasons that they couldn't look after them. And you actually um, only needed two signatures. So it could be from a doctor or a 
husband, who's what are the research yeah. we found, <laughs> to be put into an asylum, but you needed eight to get out. And to even have access to a doctor... How can you even get uh, you, it? ..when you're in there, like, to get eight yeah. signatures from someone to be able to get out. And then a lot of the time, I think it was in the 80s in the research, I'm forgetting, but um, when a lot of the asylums went uh, private and they got sold... Oh, the 90s, I think. Yeah, yeah. the 90s, sorry. Under um, Kennett when, yes. Yes. in Victoria, yeah. yes, yeah. when so, you know, a yeah. lot of places were either sold off and, like, state-run facilities, yeah. Yeah. closed off and suddenly a huge surge of mentally ill people on the streets. Yeah. Exactly, which is the result of mm. um, many homeless people now, which is terribly sad yeah. and unfortunate. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the we it was great that we sort of got to... Uh, research facilities, uh, people that were in them, people that ran them. Um, We went – it was – some of the stories that came out were really interesting. We also looked at um, researching and and talking to people who, if we could have anything at all, what would you you want it to be now? What would you want – what the support, what would the health, Mm -hmm. you know, facilities look like now um, if we had money and all of the things? So that's how we sort of created – the show's kind of in three worlds now. So um, there's the world of like... The utopia. The utopia. <laughs> like what could it be if we could have anything? But then maybe that doesn't work either. Mm. And then we sort of go back into a little bit of history in the second world of, um, you know, what it was like um, which is called Ghosts uh, Ghosts of the Past. Ghosts of the Past. And then the final act, which I don't want to give too much away, but it is around a family dinner because we kept we rewrote Act 3 quite a lot <laughs> and it was from a personal experience that I had sitting around a family dinner table that I went, oh, my gosh, this is Act 3. And I was sitting there being like... Oh, taking notes taking on notes your phone. And I, rang Lisa and I, went, I know what Act 3 is, I know what Act 3 is. Um, because we thought, well, we don't have the answers and I don't know if anyone does, but I think... Our goal would be to be just shedding and, – and I think we're doing a really good job of, like, being able to talk about mental health and what you need as a person to get through the day and life. Um, but I think if we could do more yeah. – and I think if it can start at the family unit, whether that's friends that are your family or your blood family, but if we can talk about it there, then it might be able to ripple out into the community and we can be more open about it and just shedding the stigma. Because if you need – like I said um, – it's even in the show, but like if you have a broken arm or, you know, uh, a physical a physical injury injury or something like that, people are oh yep yeah, okay don't you know they're on crutches let's help them a little bit. But if you have something that's happening inside of you and your feelings and in your brain and because it is all connected, people don't know, and a lot of people don't want to share it because they're like oh I'm just trying to get through the day. At the end of the day, we really don't know what everybody is going through and. People don't have to be sharing it on the street, but I think if we can all have a little bit more empathy kindness. and awareness and kindness <laughs> about it, which will is, help. I mean, I've described theatre many times as an empathy machine. Mm-hmm. Theatre by watching theatre, by walking for an hour or an hour and a half in somebody else's shoes and feeling, not just hearing their story, but feeling their story, mm. feeling their life, their yeah. pain. Uh, that enables us all, I think, to to empathise more su- successfully with such a broad variety of people. Yeah. Uh, that can only be a better thing. Mm. Now, kind of the two of you have written Slightly Cracked. You're also performing in it. Be- <laughs> before we talk about that, kind of... Jen's also directing. <laughs> How many hats can oh one person God. wear? Too many, she, but we've got she lots does of help brill- and support. She does so. it brilliantly. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of kind of connecting these strands, and as, you, as, mm. as we've heard, there's three acts, but... 
given the the kind of heavy subject matter that mm. you're exploring, talk to us about how you approached it kind of from a dramatic point of mm. view in order to ensure that audiences aren't going to come out feeling leaden, weighed down or lectured at. Abs- yeah, that was something that we really didn't want to be doing. Um, we've also got the help from Perry Cummings as our dramaturg, which we've worked with her before. She's brilliant. Um, but we definitely wanted to n- not just be like drama, drama, drama. Like, so we have sort of, that was always from the start, I'd yes. say. Um, and yep. Girls at Good, we do have a tendency to do things a bit quirky. <laughs> and we were like, what kind of genre? And we're like, dark comedy. It has we, yeah, it, this is the only way for us to really find this. So, um, we've uh, um, <laughs> the opening. I love, but I don't <laughs> want to spoil too much. But I think it's definitely got. We, we have to have humour in it because that's what we do as human beings. Yeah, we have to be able to laugh at ourselves, <laughs> and we have to be able to laugh at the circumstances. You either laugh or cry, um, and it's okay to cry. Uh, mm. But I think. There are mo- when the moments are dark in the play, they they are. But then it's really important, especially for me as an actor, a writer, and a director, mm. is to be like, don't we don't have to play the drama? Like, mm. let's just be. I play the matron, you know, which is such a stern character. And I was watching Beatrice played by um, Sophie Lampel, and I was just like, oh my gosh, you're hilarious, and you just because. Do you know what I mean? Even though you might be in this circumstance that is really depressing and heavy, you are human and Mm. people will find ways to be able to find some light. Mm. And that was really important for us because Mm. we don't want, we want people to go away having a conversation and being like, yes, it's, you know, want to talk about being able to talk about mental health and everything. But also that was entertaining and we we got it rather than just being lectured at. Yeah. And yeah. Lisa, as an actor performing mm. your own words, do you think mm-hmm. that makes for a better performance because you already know the kind of the intonation and, and the line de- delivery that you're after? Yeah, I, I think so. It's sort of like you just have this inherent understanding of what what you're trying to get across in the story and you might I've, I've done this quite a bit throughout I've, I've said the line and been like oh that sounds really bad <laughs> and yeah. it's good as being a co-writer that I can quickly oh yeah I'm just going to change that <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah it's sort of and and the character I'm playing I'm playing um the character Nadia who is the only oh, should I give it yeah so it. um who's the only character who stays the same character through all three well the constant sort of protagonist um, throughout and and she's a, a new mum I'm also a new mum and so there's a lot of um, parallels there um, and so it is a bit of that just oh it's just trusting your own that why we wrote it and how I would say that as me and um, yeah not overthinking it too much so yeah you kind of have just this understanding mm. already that um, because we wrote it. <laughs> it was probably easy to learn the lines too, yeah. I must admit. <laughs> yeah. And Jennifer, for you, kind of with the added level of the director's hat on, yeah. how challenging is it to step outside of what you have written, what is being performed, in order to view it objectively externally as a director and then have to jump back into it as an actor I know. Again? I must admit, I've probably done that with Girls That Good a bit um, in the shows, <laughs> but I think it was because when we were writing, we had a very strong vision. And even up until we were, th- when we accepted the La Mama season, which we're very, very grateful for, um, we I wasn't sure whether I'd be able to direct it. Um, 
And mm. then the only reason I was able to for this time was because we have a really big support group around us um, and having other people come on board and the right cast. I think yes, the director's talk. job is actually getting the right people in the right room and I think that's what I have done. The cast is amazing mm-hmm. and the gag support, Girls at Good support and the Mama support is good. But, yeah, it's um, – I don't know. I think I just – I know how to – I think because we had such a strong vision that it was already sort of written in the script – most of the direction, like, of the worlds that we wanted to create. And I must admit, I always love a dance number and I always love movement (laughs) and physical theatre and I just – I think um, it's only been probably in the last even day, really, when Perry came in and watched a dress rehearsal yesterday and I said, okay, I'm taking my director hat off now. It's off. And Perry gave us notes that were just beautiful because I was like, I can't – this is the actors now and so I'm being the actor. And, you know, and it's always also things like, you know, with the cast, with emails and schedules, someone else does that because it's like I can't do that as well. But I think it's... um you're very good. You go, uh, okay, I'm putting my director hat on now. You literally say that so we know what, you know, what tone is right and you know how to take what's coming, which is great. You're and, a very good communicator. Am I right in thinking, Jennifer, that you're also part of the production design team? Oh, yes, that's by accident. Um, you're we a glutton for punishment. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Well, Constance Washington, who's a gag member, um, is doing a course in design. And I was like, we need a production designer. Can you be it? And she's like, yep, yep, yep. And then um, just some personal reasons needed some extra help. Um, so I was like, right, I'll just do that too. So we've just been helping each other. So we it's, just sort of come together it's when all we need hands. help. It's definitely an ensemble piece too. So it's kind of even um, the beautiful cast are helping with social, yeah. you know, and so it's all hands on Which deck. I would like to say we've got yes. Laura Jane I'd, Turner, I'd, Sophie Lampel and Joss. McCullen. McCullen, yeah. So, I mean, the other day I said, oh, I'm struggling with this scene and Joss was there and I said, can you just can you just do some stuff with us? And he just put us, like Lisa and I, put us through this exercise and then we went, oh, we're just going to do this thing that we used to do as well. And then all of a sudden we were like, ah, that's what the scene is. Great, thank you. Yeah. So I think the direct – I think me being a director is, like I said, getting the right people in the right room. Mm. We're talking about Slightly Cracked, the new production from Girls Act Good, which is running from the 2nd of November until the 12th of November. That means you're kicking off – Tonight. tonight. <laughs> yes. Opening tonight. Woo. I know. We're no running pressure. No, 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 not at all. We're running from here to the theatre to do a dress <laughs> rehearsal and then, yeah, have a break before tonight. We're very excited. Yeah. Uh, now, we should stress too that even though this is uh, uh, an exploration of mental health and the way uh, women's men, women have been punished uh, by the, the mental health profession mm-hmm. and the medical profession in the past, it's also an exploration of women's resilience. Mm-hmm. Yes, Yes, absolutely. I think we found that in the all of the research that we did that just the, the women's stories that we read and um, there was a particular woman um, that informed a lot of a lot of the play and a lot of the um, research we did, um, Sue Treweek, uh, who, oh God, I think she was in um, Goodner Asylum, I think, and she ended up escaping and her... Uh, baby was taken away from her and she was able to reconnect with him and uh, we were just astounded by that journey that she went on um and like how can you come back from that and and she has and now she's an advocate um for people who've been through similar things so I think those kind of stories it was 
it was amazing. We're like, we have to be able to share mm. what, and and even just um, the character I play, um, women's resilience in general with the mental load that everything yes. that we carry. It's not even, um, you know, like just just in life. And to be able to tell that story as well. Yeah, I don't think you have to be in an institution or no. something to be struggling and to be able to, yeah, you know. I can personally testify to that. Yeah, I, yeah, I think Us we too. all probably can. Um, but I think that's – but I also think um, it's important to acknowledge, though, that, that that facilities are needed and we do need to be um, looking after our own mental health as well as having um, a good structure. And so it does help. But maybe I think we're probably saying that the things that happened in the past yeah. probably didn't help. No. <laughs> and we ha- women had to sort of, yeah, like yeah. rise above it and keep, keep pushing forward to yeah. be able to get through it. So, yeah. yes. And even women on the other side of things, like um, people in caring roles and things like that, there, there are – there were some very barbaric things that happened, but there were also some amazing – people who really you know mm. got behind um the yeah. people who were struggling and so, we, look, we looked at that too like yeah. the people now that are the carers because that's that's a lot yeah. as well for people we're like oh that's interesting we should be thinking about that too so there is so much in this show but it's um but I think I I must admit I enjoy I enjoy playing I enjoy doing the show like last yeah. night on the Joseph Hustle I was like yeah we've got a I think this is a good show I'm really proud of it so. I wouldn't say it's dull that's for no. sure <laughs> <laughs> Slightly Cracked is on at the La Mama Courthouse Theatre 349 Drummond Street Carlton don't go to La Mama HQ otherwise you'll have to yes. run around the corner it runs for 80 minutes with no interval uh, Thursdays to Saturdays at 7.30pm Sunday at 2pm and the dates as I said are from the 2nd until the 12th of November. Ticket $30 for 20 concession, 8 bucks for mob uh, and you can go to lamama.com.au to find out more details about Slightly Cracked, a Girls Act Good production written by my guests Lisa Dallinger and Jennifer Monk. Uh, I'm not even going to get into all the other hats Jennifer is wearing. Um, (laughs) Too many hats. Thank you both for coming in. Thank Thank you you so much. Right now it's time for us to jump tracks and talk about a different art form. We're going to talk about what has been described as a multi-sensory futurist installation by the artist Mags, who joins me in the studio now. It's being presented over two nights at the Melbourne Immigration Museum. Mags, welcome to Triple R. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Very great pleasure. Now, I know this is being described in different ways. How do you describe the piece? Oh, I think it's getting to that point of making a work that you find it so hard to describe it because you've been so deep in it. But at this point, I would like to describe it as a work that I really poured my everything into it and I really want the audience to feel something. That's how I would describe it right now. Yeah. Now... You were born in China. You now, now live here in uh, so-called Melbourne, Nam. Uh, and uh, although you have a background in ballet, for example, you've adapted a very different dance style for this work. Mm-hmm. Correct. Talk to us about what that dance style is. So um, 
I was trained in ballet, but I kind of like stepped into more street dance when I was 15, I believe. So that's about the time that I discovered whacking. So whacking is a style that started in 1970s Los Angeles in the gay club at the time from the black and Latinx community. Um, I would say it's very much a style that um, turns oppression into expression because of the social political context at the time, um, the much needed liberation and freedom for the queer community. And I would say, like every other culture, whacking has evolved into the way it is today. Um, like in terms like visually, if I could paint a picture for the audience, there's a lot of arm movement. I think people often get that confused with Vogue and ballroom, but it's actually very different culture. Um, so, yeah, I would say like every other culture, whacking has evolved into the way it is today, which for me is very much about, I suppose, how do we pay homage to the essence of the culture while finding the integration of like essence of who we are? So in some ways with new reality, you are exploring your own personal new reality. You're kind of both honouring your ancestry and your cultural origins, exploring your connection to this place here and now, uh, informed by this dance style. Correct. That was a very good summary. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. Now, in terms of presenting at the, at the Immigration Museum, that feels like a, um, a very kind of grounded and appropriate place to perform. But I know that uh, museums are also... Um, very bureaucratic organisations and there can be lots of levels of approvals to, to reach and so forth. What's it been like liaising and working with them to, to perform in one of their spaces? It's definitely been a very interesting process because I feel like I have been in conversation with Immigration Museum for a long time. So this project actually has been in work for like about 18 months and probably been in touch with Immigration Museum even prior to that. So like it's a very long process. As you know, working in arts, our calendar marks like 18 to 24 months. So I would say it's been like a pretty ongoing relationship. And it's been quite interesting kind of getting to know different people, producers, production managers, um, and kind of just get to know where everyone's role sit in that environment. So I would say it's a very, definitely a very um, good learning experience of like, I guess, how to like liaise and manage those relationships while still, um, I suppose I really persist on my vision in that sense. And like, how do we kind of find like a balance and a middle ground for myself as an independent artist and the museum as well. So yeah, definitely a huge learning curve for sure. Yeah. And as well as it being your performance, you're then also collaborating with some other artists to realise the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's see. So you have a, a set designer, a sound designer, a lighting designer. Uh, I actually only have set designer, costume designer and lighting designer at this point. Um, so, yeah, they're all my um, dear friends and collaborators. I feel very grateful to be working with them. So the lighting artist, Jolly, we've been working together since like day one. Um yeah, I love working with Jolly. He's always a legend, very, um, always very reliable and always pull through. So shout out to Jolly if he's listening, but he's probably not. He's bumping in right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, and Derek and Tina, we kind of met earlier this year. So it's been a very... Ha- we haven't known each other for that, that long, but I would say the connection has been quite... Um, genuine and very intense as well because we all share the experience of being like Chinese diasporas living on this land and it's been yeah very interesting but like also very intense having that connection of like oh yeah like it's a lot of similarities but also like the beauty of like nuances of like how yeah I suppose this work I'm really kind of like tapping into this timeless this idea of like timelessness because like this there are moments I feel like, oh, I'm kind of like really reliving this moment from my past, from the memory, this nostalgia and like this tiny little shadow that I remember on my mother's desk in the lounge. But all of a sudden I'm like right now, right here, like and also but aspiring to like what our future could be. And if there is a utopia, what could that be? So I guess like our connection, my connection with Derek and Tina really unfolds around there. Like a lot of dreaming, a lot of unpacking, a lot of just a lot of conversations. So yeah, I feel very grateful to have them on board and kind of sharing this experience together. The title of the work, New Reality, then also takes on multiple meanings because uh, yes, it is grounded in the reality of here and now, but it is... Uh, a new reality, looking forward, looking to the future and drawing on uh, the the memories that create you, but those memories are then also shaped by other people. So there's kind of a a sense of uh, of, not quite linear time flowing through the work, but certainly uh, being informed by past, present and future. Mm -hmm. 100%. And I think... This year, I've kind of been really like delving into this idea of world building, which I'm not too sure if you're acquainted with the idea. But essentially, world building, I think it um, started from like more of a virtual reality gaming kind of realm. So essentially, in that realm, it's like, oh, how do we build like a new world if we are to make quote unquote make the rules? What would that be? So I suppose that's like the origin of world building. And as I started looking into it a bit more, um, I suppose world building is very much relevant to like the life that we live in now. And I suppose especially as artists, makers, um, like for me, it's always I always very enjoy to like dream very bold and dream in ways of like how do we how do we disrupt and how do we kind of create that space that supports try and error that supports failure so I suppose like new reality is a space for that new reality is very much situated in world building like and we're also inviting the audience to come in and be a part of that experience of like if there is an utopia for you if you want to build a world what would that be and this is my world this is my new reality this is the world that I want to build but handing the mic to you what would you like to be yeah and I guess layered on top of that is the idea of uh, not just encouraging the audience to think about what they want their new reality to be, but creating uh, a reality of your own in the performance space itself 
for the audience to witness as well. Yes, exactly, exactly. I'm speaking with Mags about the work New Reality that's happening uh, coming up at the Immigration Museum. If you've not been to the Immigration Museum before, it's part of Museums Victoria and is located at 400 Flinders Street in the CBD. And New Reality is running on Sunday the 5th this Sunday and then this coming Monday the 6th of November from 8 till 9pm. So it's a, uh, an, an after dark performance uh, at the Immigration Museum. And uh, on the Monday night there's going to be what a bit of a, bit of a party afterwards. Got a little celebration going on, a little after party. So um, yeah, definitely welcome everyone to join us after the performance we'll have um we'll have Nanoi and Mikey representing Westside coming through playing back to back for um an hour and a half so yeah that will be a good time cool and to come back to the your your dance performance your dance style how has your ballet background informed your whacking for example, kind mm-hmm. of, what did you find it an easy progression? Was or did you just let ballet go and embrace whacking fully? Or if people are familiar with both art forms, would they see hints or echoes mm-hmm. of ballet in your whacking performances? Mm-hmm. Funny, I always get that question like all the time. Um, but yeah, funny story. I when I started with ballet, I was like quite young, and it was like one of those times where my mom was like, "Hey, do you want to do this?" And as like one of one of those children, I'm like, "Okay." And once I got into it, uh, mom's like, "Well, now you can't quit. Like our family doesn't quit." <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, I kind of like I suppose was like forced to get stuck into it. And my teacher at the time she was Russian, so it was like very strict I remember like having like nightmares about <laughs> going to ballet classes um but you that know sounds like a good reason to quit to me oh god uh, but I'm glad I didn't um even though I, I suppose as a child I didn't see it but now I'm definitely grateful for it because I feel like the kind of discipline that ballet gives you like to your body like the muscle memory that I have in my body is quite I, I feel like it's set up like an infrastructure to receive different movement in a way that I could today so I suppose that's a very good felt like that's how I would talk about it like overarchingly but I suppose um yeah definitely I feel like my style in whacking because whacking is very much a freestyle dance like you'll have your foundation so the foundation for whacking is technique musicality and character which are like the three um key foundation in whacking but once you kind of like I guess acquaint yourself with those foundation it's up to you how you want to take that so I would say my style especially like um, visually or aesthetically speaking definitely you can see like influence of ballet in it the form the posture like and I always like I wear um, jazz shoes as well because I really like um, to showcase my um, toes <laughs> to point my toes um so yeah like I always get like a lot of people like come to af- like come towards me after a battle or something like are you training ballet um so I suppose that's quite I feel like maybe it's an essence of ballet not as much of like oh I'm doing a plie or I'm doing ta da da. it's more of an essence and the energy of ballet and I feel like that's quite deeply integrated in in my body I can understand yeah. that I, I can 
see ballet dancers on the street and I know there are ballet dancers. There's something about the posture, mm-hmm. for example, and the way people hold themselves, mm-hmm. uh, similar to, to seeing a circus performer. When, when you meet a, enough artists in a particular genre, there's just a couple of telltale signs yes. that sometimes give it away. Um, for, uh, how did you discover whacking out of interest? Because as you said, it, it grew out of queer clubs in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, so what was your exposure to it? So when I, so I remember when I got into it, when was it? I think 2014, like early 2014. So almost, wow, a decade ago. That's crazy. Um, just having a moment. <laughs> um, so at the time, I, I've already stopped ballet at the time, but I was kind of like getting into street dance. But at the time, like we all were kind of like taking quote unquote street dance classes in a studio, which is not really street dance. But at the time, that was like the only resources we had. So I was kind of like just lingering around in the studio, maybe like in between classes or after a class. And I remember this one day I saw I was outside of a small studio and I saw this one person was just doing whacking in the studio and they were just by themselves having the best time like like I just remember like the joy and the liberation, like just the energy they were giving in that moment. I was like, what is that? I want to do that. And I've been doing it ever since that moment. If you would like to see Mag's uh Whacking uh, as part of the work New Reality, which is happening this Sunday the 5th and Monday the 6th of November. Uh, you can go to museumsvictoria.com.au forward slash immigration museum. Click on the uh, the What's On page, which is where you can book tickets. Tickets are 30 bucks, 20 concession, 20 if you're a Museums Victoria member, and also uh, $20 uh, tickets for mob as well. So uh, go to, as I said, Museums Victoria au for more information and to book for the immersive experience New Reality performed by Mags uh, and uh, described as a multi-sensory performance featuring light, sound, textile, installation and movement and performed in the long room at the Immigration Museum which is a pretty remarkable space in and of itself. So uh, those dates again this Sunday, the 5th and Monday, the 6th of November from 8 until 9pm to see New Reality by Mags at the Melbourne Immigration Museum in Flinders Street in the CBD. Mags, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. uh, And if you are a Triple R subscriber and would like to see uh, New Reality at 8pm on Monday night with the celebration afterwards, I have one double pass to give away. Give me a call, 9388-1027. Uh, as I said, I've got a double pass to give away to see New Reality if uh, you have been intrigued by our conversation. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 